This morning we're going to begin one of two sermons that aren't actually from Ephesians chapter 5, but they're going to kind of stem from that topic. You may remember that Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 are dealing with marriage. And two important topics that stem from that are, well, what about singleness? And if I'm going to pursue marriage, how should I do that? Or what about divorce? How should we think about that? So this week, we're going to talk about singleness and moving to marriage. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at divorce. But let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we deal with heavy topics this week and next week. And yet we know your word is sufficient. Your word can guide us and direct us in all of life. So would these words be a reflection of your word? And would they lead us to joy and lives that honor you? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, you may know that in 2014, for the first time, the United States moved from a nation in which more adults were married to single. That's in contrast to 100 years before when only 5% of the adult population was single. And when it comes to being single or married, Christians have often erred in both extremes. One extreme is thinking that to be holy, you shouldn't be married. Now, we don't think this way much anymore, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote in the 1500s, When I was a boy, the church's practice in regards to marriage had made marriage so disreputable that I believed that I could not even think about the married people without sinning, the married life of people. Everyone was fully persuaded that anyone who intended to lead a holy life acceptable to God could not get married, but had to live as a celibate and take the vow of celibacy. Even today, if you want to be a priest or nun in the Catholic Church, you have to be celibate. The other extreme, though, is more where we are today, and that is to think if you're not married, if you're not with someone, your life is a curse. It's as Alan Jackson wrongly sings, can't correct him too many times, but as he wrongly sings on this one, living on love, buying on time, without somebody, life ain't worth a dime. Well, a single life can be infinitely valuable, even as a single, just like the life of Jesus was. But you might be thinking, well, what in the world does the Bible have to say about singleness, about dating? Well, Richard and Sharon Phillips write, what does the Bible have to say about dating? There are two ways to answer the question. The first is nothing. Paul never says a word about what to do on a first date. The Bible's not going to give you an answer about whom to ask out or whom to say yes to. The second answer, though, is everything. That is, everything we read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 2 is of vital importance to dating as it is to all of life. God's Word is primarily about telling us how God sent His Son to redeem the world, how He created it and how He's going to recreate it. But as we come to know that cosmic picture, as we're given that understanding, we're given a worldview that gives us answers and principles for every single day of life. Now, in doing this, we have to be careful we don't take descriptions in the Bible and turn them into prescriptions. For example, the story of Isaac and Rebekah is not that you should go have your butler go up to the local high school and pray, whoever fills my car with gas, I will then take this girl home to be my owner's lord. Nor is it that you should follow the Benjamites in Judges 21, go to a dance party, 
grab a girl at night and run off with her as your wife. You know, those are in the Bible, but that's not the way the Bible teaches us how to find a spouse. Yet there are many things we'll see. So this morning, we have two main points. Staying single for God's glory and your joy, and seeking a spouse for God's glory and your joy. Keith read for us earlier, 1 Corinthians 7. So turn there, 1 Corinthians 7, because you may have noted several times in there, Paul encouraging them to singleness. Now, we're not going to dive in every verse. I would take much too long, and Keith's going to go over that here in a few weeks in Sunday school. But it all begins in verse 1 of chapter 7 with, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And it appears that this whole section is dealing with the fact that some in Corinth thought that to live a holy life means that you need to avoid pleasure. What you need to do is seek to be austere, or what might be called ascetic, to live a life of suffering for God. Even if you're married, you're not going to enjoy any of those benefits. And sadly, there have always been people that think, oh, if you really want to honor God, you must be suffering for it. You must really be making life miserable. Then you're enjoying God and serving Him. Well, that's not true. The Bible shows us you can serve God fully, whether you're feasting, or fasting, whether you're married or single, you can honor God. And so Paul transitions though, but notice what he says in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. What is am here? He's saying in his single condition. Now he quickly qualifies this because he says in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he is going to go back and forth in this chapter, saying singleness is good, and we'll see why later. But look, if you want to get married, if you need to get married, that is a good thing too. Now I know that in here, most people just kind of hear these verses they've heard them before, but outside of this context, people would laugh. This is outrageous. Getting married for purity? I mean, they just need to get control of themselves. Come on, what is this about? However, we're often told we can't teach children abstinence. It just won't work. And in many regards, though definitely not all, we should agree. Our desires are very strong. And consider these two interesting facts. Back in 1860, the average onset for puberty for girls was 16 and a half years old. But now today, that's dropped to ten and a half. Boys are about the same with a year delay. At the same time as that has dropped, the average age of marriage has gone the other way, so that now, on average, a woman gets married at age 27 and men at age 29. So what we're doing is we're encouraging people to go 15 of their most intentionally intense sexually charged times and saying, no, no, no. You just need to put a cap on that. Don't do anything. And so God is saying, no, look, yeah, I've given you a good gift. There's a good way to enjoy this. And part of the problem, though, is that people just think, well, look, that's their personal life. They can do whatever they want. God doesn't really care about that. Except consider 1 Thessalonians 4, which says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. God does care about all aspects of our life, even our sexual life, and he declares he will judge us. Yet the good news is God doesn't just give us a pressure pot of desires and then say, well, you just got to keep the lid on. Rather, we're being shown he's given us good desires and a wonderful outlet for those desires. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying the only reason to marry is for personal purity. That's one of the many good gifts God has given us in marriage. As well, neither am I saying if you get married, you'll be fine with your lack of self-control. 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about getting control. Thus, if you're addicted to pornography or sleeping around before marriage, marriage isn't going to be some panacea that fixes all your problems. Sin starts in the heart, and we must combat it there. However, while sin starts in the heart, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take wise precautions and realize the outlets God has given to enjoy his good gift. Well, after those verses in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul then transitions to talk about what were you like when you were called to Christ? In other words, he's saying, look, the majority of the aspects of your life don't need to change when you become a believer. Were you a banker when you became saved? Well, then be a banker. Were you a plumber when you were saved? Well, be a plumber. All these details of life, unless it's a sinful job, you can still do it. As a Christian, you can be single or married, rural or, or urban, rich or poor. Those don't matter. But then he will transition to verse 25 and talk about that specific idea. Well, should you be married and honor God or should you be single? Now, as Keith was reading, you may have noticed in your Bible, verses 25 through 40, various words were used. Some may have said virgin daughter, some virgin, some betrothed. And depending on how you translate that or have it in your bible you can have some kind of eyebrowsing eyebrow raising what in the world is he saying there um i think in general it's best to see that he's talking to young women that's what all of those mean not literally virgins nor also not the daughters of a father as well in verse 26 he talks about because of this present distress well that's kind of vague is he talking about a present distress in corinth or is he talking about a present distress for all time now I have not written any dissertations on this or anything like that. I think in general, he's talking about the present distress that we now live in this world, but we're not to be of it. We now live as citizens of heaven, but we still live on earth. So how do we live in this distress, this time in which we're dealing with both? Well, he encourages them in this present distress, verse 27. Are you abound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now again, it could be a specific situation in Corinth, but I haven't yet been convinced of that. Nonetheless, what he's talking about is, look, you have this freedom. You have this option. You know, there are areas in the Christian life where we don't all need to do the same thing. You may feel convicted, I need to go buy a new car. Someone else might feel convicted, I need to buy a used car. Someone else may go, Oh, I need to wa not watch this movie. Oh, someone else would say, no, I, I think it would be good to watch that movie to talk to co-workers. There's a lot of areas where there are Christian liberty. And here, Paul is saying there's liberty because notice what he then adds in verse 28. 
right after he says, don't seek a wife or don't be free from them, he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And then he's going to go in the next few verses after this to talk about all these things about their current life. Verse 30, those who, we'll back up, verse, middle of verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I think what he's saying there is, look, there's all these things you could get your life fixed on, fixated on, what you buy. I mean, people get so fixated on their possessions. Who they are with, oh, their wife, that's all that matters, or if they can get one or get a husband. Or with their mourning, their life just becomes about all their sorrows. And he's saying, look, all these things are not bad, but you need to have your life fixated on something more important, Christ himself. So Paul is not saying we shouldn't enjoy the things of life. He'll warn Timothy that people will teach that. Rather, he's saying, look, your life should be wrapped around Christ. And he's arguing for him, that means he should stay single. And he's encouraging others, hey, you may have a greater opportunity if you are single. So what do you base your identity, your purpose on? We probably have all known people or maybe we've been people who feel like Alan Jackson, that without a romantic someone in your life, life ain't worth a dime. You know, some are addicted to relationships the way others are to alcohol or drugs. You just talked to them last week about the new Mr. Wonderful in their life, the person of their dreams. This is it. This is the one. And next week, that's Mr. Horrible. I hate him. He's the trash but there's the new Mr. Wonderful. You haven't met him yet. And they bounce from relationship to relationship. And they always seem that they have to have someone in their life. Others fear being alone or having to listen to, uh-oh, Thanksgiving's coming. When's grandma going to go? Are you ever going to get married? And they just want to be left alone. So I need to go find someone so I can just not be that single person. And so they pursue a relationship, not because they love the person, but for other reasons. But we should be as the psalmist who can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know, when God is our greatest treasure, then we can still love others, not denigrating marriage, but they take their right and proper perspective. And so Paul here is saying the proper perspective is a spouse may be great, but it might distract you in some ways from serving. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. That's all he's saying. Look, everyone who's married knows you need to talk to your spouse. You need to make sure they're okay. You need to love them. Well, that takes time. And that's not bad. But if you want to be 100% devoted to God, then you could only be single. You know, every Christian should be dealing with, how can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And for some of us, that's, I can do that best when I'm married. And for others, we need to consider, I can do that best if I stay single. The 
issue here is not one is good and honors God, one is worse and doesn't honor God. It's the directness or the degree in which you can serve God. You know, consider, for example, something like a war, World War II. A soldier on the front line, we might say, they are serving for the U.S. They're in the battle. They're doing it. But you know what? All the people who are back home, who are rationing goods, who are sending supplies to the front, they were also engaged in the war effort. It didn't look the same, but everyone was engaged. Likewise, everyone, single or married, can serve God, though the single, Paul is going to say, can serve with a greater undivided attention. So let's get two implications or applications and then move to the next section. First, we should never denigrate singleness. You know, we are not in the days of Martin Luther where we're going, if you want to serve God, you should really be single. We're in the days in which, oh, they're single. Who can I hook them up with? Who will be the person they can marry? And every single feels like they're always being tried to be connected with someone else. You know, we don't always need to be matchmaker. As well, we could recognize the many wonderful singles who have served and do serve God. I mean, there's famous ones, John Stott, Corey Den Boom, Paul, a man named Jesus. They all have done great things for God as singles. And so we shouldn't act like, oh, well, yeah, they're single. Their life really stinks. No, that's a wonderful gift that God gives some people how they can serve him. But second, notice why Paul wants to be single and encourages other people to be single. It's not so he merely has more free time to do whatever he wants. It's not that this would take away, if he got married, his expendable income or limit his ability to travel. He wants to be single so he's free to use that extra to serve God. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to want extra free time or money or the ability to travel. Yes, enjoy those things, but realize those ultimately pale in significance to serving God in his kingdom. Yet, some people don't want to stay single. So how should they move towards marriage? So if that is what they want to do, then second, we're going to see seeking a spouse for God's glory and your joy. Now, most of everything that I'm going to say from here is not from a direct passage of Scripture, and a lot of it is my opinion but I hope it's based on God's word and principles from that. So you might go, eh, I don't really agree with them there. Well, I'd love to talk to you about it. And you might help me correct my opinions. But this is what I think are helpful ways in which we can honor God in this area of life. Because after deciding to follow Christ, there's probably no greater decision most people make than if and whom they will marry. You just think about all the things your spouse will influence. They'll influence your time. They'll influence if you have children and how you'll raise them. They'll influence how you spend your money, where you'll go for holidays, where you'll live, where you'll go to church, where you might even have a job. Thus, people should make this decision thoughtfully, carefully, wisely, and without haste. However, even though this is one of the most important decisions, currently, somewhere between 35 to 50% of American marriages end in divorce. And due to this and a host of other factors, now the majority of couples don't get married first, but they move in together. The thought is, look, I've gone through the pain of a divorce. 
I've seen others. We need to make sure we're compatible, compatible first. However, for most marriages, it's not compatibility. Rather, it's commitment that is the glue. I mean, just consider there are still countries and people today that have arranged marriages. Now, I'm not advocating arranged marriages, so take a deep breath. But how is it that even people in arranged marriages can come to love each other? Well, because they are committed to one another. One man from India once said to a European, you marry the girl that you love. We love the woman that we have married. Another Indian put it more drastically, we put cold soup on the fire and it becomes slowly warm. You put hot soup into a cold plate and it becomes slowly cold. Now, of course, I am not saying every divorce is because there are uncommitted people in it. I know, sadly, many of you wish you were not divorced, and it's not because of your lack of commitment. You are committed. You cannot help what the other person does. My point is that we as a society are still pursuing relationships in a way that won't necessarily produce lasting results. Even our new attempt, okay, now we're going to move in together. Actually, if you look at studies, people who move in together divorce at a higher rate than those who didn't move in together first. (coughs) So we really need to stop and think about this. I mean, just consider if you heard of any restaurant, any company, any program, that what they did produced a 35 to 50% failure rate. I mean, would you go to a restaurant in town if you knew, well, you know, 3 to 5% of their meals, people get food poisoning. Well, you wouldn't even go for 3 to 5%, let alone 35 to 50%. If you heard, yeah, those cars, 1% of them, they just kind of blow up every once in a while. You're like, oh, it's 1%. You go, no, I'm never going to buy that car. And yet, 35 to 50% of the way we as a society say, this is how you should do this, ends in destruction. So what I'm going to say next, you're probably going to go, that guy is crazy. Well, fine, we'll come up with some other new crazy idea because what we're doing isn't working. It's broken. It's dysfunctional and whatever is normal you know what that changes over time 50 years from now what's normal today people will look back and go look at what they're wearing in 2023 did you know how they decided they were going to get married back then oh they're so weird you know if you went back to the 1900s again i'm not saying this is what we're going to do how would you do this well a young man would schedule a time with dad to come visit in the parlor and then after couple weeks in the parlor, they would progress to the, getting kind of scandalous, front porch and talk. And then over time, as they got to know each other, then they would decide to get married. They would never go out, just the two of them, one-on-one on a date. Now again, I'm not advocating we need to return to that. But what I'm saying is, let's think about normal is not exactly normal, and what is normal today is not working. We need to consider Romans 12, 1 through 2. Do not be conformed to this world. It's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in regards to this, let's give five topics. Why, who, how to get to know them, how to decide, and what if I can't get married but want to. So first, why? Why? This is, well, what's the goal or purpose of getting together with someone? Now, I'm not going to go into a big discussion on whether you should call it dating or courtship or betrothal or all these other words. Whatever you want to call it, 
I believe the goal of getting together with someone else of the opposite sex should be to know if you want to marry them. <laughs> oh, God, this guy's crazy. I just want to go have fun. Well, great. Go have fun and take some other people with you. It happens every single time when two people of the opposite sex spend time together alone over a period of time. One of them eventually goes, I really would like this to go farther. It always happens. And the other person goes, well, I thought, I thought we were being friends. If you want to just go have fun, go have fun with friends. But if you're going to spend time with someone of the opposite sex, eventually it always happens. One of them gets their heart attached. And out of love for the other person, don't take their heart and t treat it so carelessly. So be cautious in why you're doing this. Now, of course, I'm not saying on the first date you need to say, oh, well, I'm going to marry them. Oh, I'm not going to marry them. However, if you ever get to a point where you're like, I don't think I could marry this person, then that's the time to say, hey, I've enjoyed the time together, but I don't think I want to keep getting together one-on-one. -on -one. Or if someone calls you and you don't want to be absolutely rude and just say no, you could say, hey, so who else is going out with us? And when they have that awkward, well, um, I, I just meant the two of us, you could say, oh, I'm, thank you, that's really kind, but I'm just not interested in that type of relationship with you. But be honest. So enjoy people as friends, but not in dating situations. Well, second, who? Well, we're speaking here as Christians. So as a Christian, at least three things should be considered about who you would date. First, I believe you should only date someone who's a Christian. You know, if the goal is marriage, well, then why would you start to date someone who you shouldn't marry? You know, why would you want to spend your life with someone who doesn't share the most fundamental, joy-inspiring aspect of your life, your faith in Christ? Second, you should evaluate whether they're growing and are a vibrant Christian. We're commanded, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, being a Christian is not merely about a prayer you prayed when you were younger or a decision you made or the box you check when you get a survey, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm not something else. Being a Christian, we're to grow. We're supposed to daily delight in God. And if you're with this person that every time the Bible comes up or God comes up or their faith, they kind of get quiet or do you can we talk about something else? Well, that should be red flag. This person is not wanting to grow. They don't love to talk about God and you should date someone else. Third, you should know enough about their character to know you're interested. Now, of course, dating in some ways how you get to know their character. So it's kind of has to go together. But you need to be thinking of how can I get to know this person? Now, you might have noticed when I said who, I didn't say someone that you have great chemistry with or that's funny or attractive. Now, I'm not saying that's bad to consider. I don't think you should probably marry someone if you cringe every time you see them. However, as you've gotten to know people, you've probably had some people that you think, eh, they're just kind of so-so attractive-wise. And as you've gotten to know them and you see how kind and loving and serving they are, they become more attractive in your eyes. And you've probably known some people that you meet them and you go, wow, they are good-looking. And as you get to know them, and you see how cruel they are, and vindictive, and mean, you're like, that person's not that attractive. Their character is what will last. Their beauty, their humor, those things will come and go. 
That's why in Proverbs 31, when the young man's being instructed, he's told, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. That's what he should consider. What is her character? What does she love? That's what matters. Yes, charming. Oh, they make me laugh. Great. Oh, they're so funny. They're beautiful. Wonderful. But that is secondary. Primary is their character. So we've looked at why you should date, who you should date, but how do we do this? Let me give four considerations. Very basic. Well, how do you even meet the person? Well, this is 2023. We're no longer arranging marriages. So look around the people who are single your age. And I mean, you don't have to be too observant to go. There's not too many singles. Maybe everyone's age in here. So maybe go to another Bible study or maybe ask friends or maybe use a dating app. I've known several people who've used them and they've been helpful for them in getting to know someone else. But that really leads to the second consideration and that is you need to get to know their character. So don't use the dating app where it's attractive or not. I've never used these, so I don't really know. But I guess you swipe right or left, and then I've been told what they are being set up to go do afterwards. But nonetheless, that's not the dating app I'm encouraging you to. There's plenty that ask lots of questions and say, give ways to get to know the person in their likes and dislikes before you go on a date. So the issue is if character is most important, how do you get to know someone's character? Well, it's not snuggling. It's not by candlelight. And it's not typically in all the other romantic situations we like to have when we go dating. You know, anyone can look good on a date. Tragically, many people have said, once they're married, you're not the person I dated. Well, it is the person you dated. You just didn't get to know them while you were dating them. They have not changed. You have just come to see who they really are. So you need to date them in a way to get to know who they really are. So spend time with them in all sorts of contexts. How do they respond when they get cut off in traffic? When they're late because of things they couldn't control? How do they treat their parents, their siblings, their regular friends? Well, that's how they'll eventually treat you. How do they respond in a loss? What do they do in a victory? In a loss, are they grumpy for the rest of the day? Will they cheat in a victory? Are they that person who for the next hour you have to hear about, I won, I won. Or do they know how to win graciously? How do they handle awkward situations? What do they do at that restaurant when they specifically said, don't put ranch on that, and they slathered it with ranch? Now, I'm not saying how they should handle it, but if they're going to blow up every time they have bad service, eventually in your marriage, you're going to do something they don't like. Learn how do they respond in situations that don't go the way they like. Well, what do they do when they make a public mistake? Can they laugh at themselves? Can they say, I was wrong. I messed up. So let me just, I've kind of dealt on this, but let's just give three other important character issues to try and get to know before you say yes. How do they deal with conflict? What do they think of serving and integrity? As for conflict, you know, just look at their life. Do they have a history of relationships in which they've always been sinned against? You know, after a while, you see people who have all these broken relationships and you start to go, you know, the common factor in all these broken relationships is you. You've had all these broken relationships. Yes, it could be that you've just happened to meet all the worst people. But if they don't have any long-term friends, that's something to consider. Do they know how to work through conflict? 
And when there is conflict, are they sarcastic? Are they rude? Do they cut the other person off? Do they hold grudges? Do they give the person the benefit of the doubt? I mean, these things are going to come in your relationship eventually. Or in regards to service. You know, you're at an event with church meal. It's time to wrap up. Do they kind of slip out? Or are they the person going, how, how can I clean up? What can I do to help? When they're at their home with their family, are they the one who is saying before the meal, what can I do? Or afterwards, what can I do? Or are they the one who kind of slips off and just goes to watch the game? You know, their cuteness, their jokes won't be funny when you're doing all the laundry and dishes by yourself. You won't be laughing when they tell you the score of the game. You won't want to go snuggle on the couch with them anymore. Do they want to serve? That's the person you want to consider. And integrity. Do they have a lot of little white lies? You know, they're supposed to be somewhere a certain time and they're late and you hear them saying, oh, we had a flat tire. And you're going, flat tire? Am I in a different car than this person? Oh, well, I'm... And everything, they're always twisting things. Well, that lack of integrity will show up in your marriage. So, we've looked at how you should get to know them. We've looked at their character. Well, let me also say another consideration is move at an appropriate pace. Now, the obvious one is the pace physically. Now, if you really want to completely distort and distract yourself from truly getting to know someone, well, then just get really involved physically. Because then you'll have all these raging hormones and you won't really have any honest assessment because you'll be driven by your emotions and desires. And I could dive into all kinds of specifics. Touch here, don't touch there, kiss here, don't go, all these things. But as a Christian, our desire is to live for holiness. You know, if you knew there was a cliff, you wouldn't drive your car 90 miles per hour and go, how close can I get before I have to hit the brakes? Oh, hit him, hit him! Oh, ooh, we were close that time. Okay, next time, we could probably go just a little farther because we actually didn't go over. So why go to the edge? Just stay away. Because Solomon tells us, Solomon 2, Song of Solomon 2.7, do not awaken love before it's time. Or maybe more modern, if you're not going to cook the roast, don't preheat the oven. There's no reason to put yourself in a situation where you're outpacing where you are. But we often as Christians underthink this. We, we don't understand what intimacy is because intimacy is not just physical. There's also emotional, spiritual, and relational intimacy. You know, I've known people, they get their first boyfriend or girlfriend and every thought they've ever had in their life, every desire or dream, and they dump it on this person. And what does that do? They have this emotional attachment. They've shared all their innermost thoughts, secrets, desires, and they maybe haven't even held hands, but they are so attached. For others, it's spiritual intimacy. Oh, what I need to do is lead. And so you're always making them your accountability partner and praying together. Well, as one man said, many people have started praying together and ended up sleeping together. Intimacy is intimacy. No matter where it is. Or relationally. You can ramp up the relationship outpacing where it should be if you start saying all the, hopefully not just sweet nothings. Now this is not a word from the Lord. It's a word from Jeremy. But I would encourage you to not tell someone you love them until you're also ready to say right after that, will you marry me? Yes, we should love all people. But that's not what people mean when they say I love you. So if someone says to you, I love you, you should say, that is really kind. I really appreciate that. 
but I don't know that we should be talking to each other that way yet. You know, if we're going to talk that way, we need to start talking about when we're going to get married. Because when you dump this relational intimacy, it leads to all kinds of other considerations. Well, fourthly, in this section, I think you need to consider who they are, male and female. Because we just looked at it the last couple of weeks. God made the husband to lead in the relationship. He made the wife to respect and honor her husband. So you need to consider the man, if you're dating a man, do I want to follow this man? Can he make decisions? Is he rash? Does he think through things? Or does he just do whatever and then later deals with the consequences? You know, during the dating, she's always making the decisions and she's basically driving the relationship then that'll be what the marriage was like. And for many, that will be very frustrating. On the flip side, for the man considering the woman, is this a type of woman that I could lead? Does she always have to have her way? Is she always, the, the authorities in her life now, is she always second-guessing, criticizing, talking behind their back? Or is she someone that I can sacrifice for and love? Well, we've looked at who or why, who, how to get to know them, and then fourth, how should you decide that this is the person I should marry? Well, many people think they'll fall in love and they'll just know. You'll know when it's the one. They'll be your soulmate. And yet, though many people know, you'll know, 35 to 50% actually didn't know because it didn't work out. You know, that's going off your emotions. I think Scott Croft explains it well. He says, you might feel like at some point you will just magically know he or she is the one. Rather, fundamentally, there comes a point in every relationship when if you enjoy being with the person, you know you have theological agreement on a host of issues, and you have no red flags or deal breakers that would stop the relationship, then finally it's a matter of deciding to commit yourself. There will be no writing in the sky. God won't give you a verse in your quiet time that says, marry her. No, fundamentally, you have to decide that to the best of your knowledge, getting married is a good thing. And if so, then you can commit yourself to going forward. Don't wait around wondering how to figure out God's will for the relationship. Most often, God's will is revealed by you making that decision. And making that decision, we should consider, how does the Bible encourage us to make decisions? Proverbs fifteen twenty two: Wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors. You know, in relationships, we tend to lose any sense of objectivity or neutrality. So you should want, I know I'm getting really weird here, you should want your parents and your family and those who know you to get to know the person as well and to ask, do you think this is a good person for me to marry? What do you think? They may see things about you or them that they go, you know, I just don't think this is a good fit for you. Now, of course, they could be wrong. I'm not saying you need to take everything they say, but you should consider all this. Now, all of this, you might be thinking, well, this sounds like some cold business-like deal, like, let's go get a chart and line everything up. No, I'm not saying that. Yes, you should feel romantically toward them. I'm not denying that. You should be attracted to them. I'm just saying, we have moved those two things to the front, and character is like, well, that'll all work out in the room. If we get married, we love each other. Love conquers all. Well, love doesn't conquer all. Many times, those feelings, that one, oh, they're the one, 
doesn't conquer anything, but they end up breaking up because they didn't consider character. They didn't consider, do they love Christ? They didn't consider what family and friends would say. Well, let's conclude with, but what if I want to get married and I can't? I don't think I have the gift. I've, unlike Paul, I'm not saying that this is wonderful. I've prayed hundreds, maybe thousands of times that God would give me someone. And he still hasn't. Well, this might be like Paul's thorn in his side where he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Just as God is the father to the fatherless and the protector of widows, so he is the spouse to the spouseless. I don't say these things as platitudes. I know for some it is a deep heartache that they are single. So cast your burden on the Lord, knowing that he promises to sustain you. He doesn't promise to remove your situation, but he does promise to be with you and that he loves you and that he cares for you. And then if you really desire to keep putting yourself in situations where you might get to meet someone, but then realize that in this, like 1 Corinthians 7 says, God can use your singleness in a way to serve him that maybe you won't when you get married, if that ever happens. Well, we all know the storybook ending. They lived happily ever after. And yet we also know that in the stories of our lives, we don't always live happily ever after. But there will be one marriage that will be happily ever after. That is that Christ came for his bride. And that's what Ephesians 5, 22-33 is all about. Marriage is a wonderful picture. A picture of God's love for us and the church's response. And one day, when Christ returns to get his bride, we will all live happily ever after. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do long for that day. Lord, we have desires. Some that have gone unfulfilled for years. Some that we thought were fulfilled, but... We ended up not wanting what we thought we wanted. And so, Lord, we bring all of that to you. And we look forward to the day when all the sin and brokenness is removed. And we will be with you eternally, knowing you and being known by you. So, Lord, would you give us wisdom as we live today to know how to honor you, whether single or married, that you would be exalted and that you would give us great joy in whatever the circumstances we have. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.